I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 57 of Talking Golf History. Today on our show, we continue with the oral history of golf with our special guest, Ben Wright. Ben Wright covered the game of golf for 50 years and spent decades in the Tower of Augusta National broadcasting the Masters. On this episode, we play a game of name recognition, where I simply say a name and let Ben Wright recall a story from the past. The result? Fabulous stories of some of the most famous names in golf's history. I would be remiss if I didn't thank the Golf Heritage Society and their publication, The Golf, for their original story on Ben Hogan, written by Ben Wright himself. You too can join the Golf Heritage Society for $50 at www.golfheritage.org. Members receive four issues of the golf a year, plus access to all previously published issues. Who knows, you may be able to read about my next podcast before I even release it. Without further ado, part two, stories of golf with Ben Wright. We're going to play name association. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just name off uh, some famous names from golf history, uh, some of which who you know or have, have run into or know stories of. And if you have a story about them, you can share it. First name we've already covered, Sevi. Sevi. Do we well, have another story or do we? Well, I mean, when I went uh, to visit his family home, and the first writer to ever cotton on to him, he was using a three iron that he'd stolen from a member's bag to hit stones on the beach. The ground floor of the family home was a dirt floor, and the chickens wander around in, in the kitchen. I mean, it, it was humble in the extreme. And, um, you know, Seve always respected those humble roots, and I loved him for that. I don't know, I, I, I mean, I've told you the one that are uh, falling out, but I mean, most of the time I gone on like a house of fire with Seve, and I saw him play some quite unbelievable shots. In fact, I must quote one we were in the, playing the Spanish Open of all things Seve you, you know could really hit a driver off the world every now and again and he did this and it finished in a grove of evergreen trees at El Prat in Barcelona there was a four foot square hole that he, it was his only way of getting out of this trees. And so I thought, well, he'll chip it out through that. Oh, takes a two-iron, lashes it through the hole in a semicircular hook, ten-foot putt for a birdie. What? And made it. Now, that was, I think, about the most outrageous thing I ever saw anybody do. Who takes that shot? Sevy exactly. does. Exactly. Right? Sevy does. That's a great story. Uh, let's go to another name. Bob Jones. Bobby Jones. I was uh, fortunate enough to get to know Mr. Jones very well because he was a subscriber to the Financial Times and would be, correspond with me about my columns. It was really when I... I must say, I, it was he was on his deathbed in a Jones Cottage 
at Augusta National when I arrived for the Masters, and I was summoned to see him, and I went there, and it was a very darkened room, and I, I kept coming out of the bright sunlight, very tough, I couldn't see where he was, and then, then I saw him, and there was this pitifully frail body, but the head normal size, and I said, you know, good to meet you again, Mr. Jones. We, and uh, he said, Young Wright? He said, your column, Saturday. I said, you mean last Saturday, Mr. Jones? He said, yes. You would give a professional golfer a two-stroke penalty for slow play. And I said, yes, Mr. Jones, and and mainly because you hate slow play as much as I do. He said, yes, but Mr. Wright, you know, you could ruin the guy's career. I said, well, you told me that slow play was a cancer that would kill this game more certainly than anything else. And he said, yes, but two strokes. <laughs> I said, well, I don't know. He said, I said, I think a guy who is a slow player is selfish in the extreme. Two strokes. And he said, no, I won't give you two. I'll give you one. Just one? One. That's great. And that were those were the last words he spoke to me, died 1971. I, yeah. Uh, but I, I got very friendly with him. I first met him in 1958 at the uh, Eisenhower Trophy, the inaugural Eisenhower Trophy. And he was staying in the same hotel as myself, the Athol in St. Andrews, which was run by three ladies who were very good and very strict. And um, if you remember, uh, they flew over a, a golf cart for Jones because he was Absolutely, already yeah. in bad shape. And um, I went to see him the first morning he was out in his cart on the old course because I had never seen a golf cart. Uh, it was amazing. And I... I, I uh, said, I, I, I think this is wonderful. And, um, of course, I didn't know then that he was being honored with the freedom of the city. And I was dragged. I was quite young. And all I wanted to do was drink and chase women in the town. Uh, but I was, I must confess, I was extremely happy Pat Ward Thomas, a great golf writer. Peter Ride, golf writer of the Times. And Leonard Crawley of the Daily Telegraph, who was a Walker Cup player himself, persuaded me to go to this ceremony. You were there? I was there. You were there? I was there. And wow. he came in on the golf cart and he said, now I'm going to get myself to the microphone when when you put me up there they didn't think he could stand and you know and you're not no one's going to touch me or I won't speak and so he took him 8 minutes to get to the microphone out of his cart and uh, or no out of his chair I'm sorry they put him in a chair and he made this incredible speech. And then the Scots tenor sung, Will ye nay come back again? And of course, like everybody else, I dissolved into tears. So, cut a long story short, we went back to the Athol Hotel. And Mr. Jones very warmly invited those three golf riders and me to drinks in his suite. And we went to his suite, and I said, Mr. Jones, forgive me for asking, but you didn't use any notes for your speech. 
how can you manage to make such a great speech off the cuff? Yeah. Just like that. He said, I'll tell you how. Here are my notes. I left them on the desk. Isn't that incredible? Unbelievable. And it's funny because that very speech, or at least a segment of it, is the opener to our podcast. I use it as the opener to all the podcasts that we do. It's such an impactful speech. And actually, Sevy is on there as well. Oh, good. as, As that opener. All right, I'm going to give you a new name. That one was a good one. I did not know you were there, and that might be the most impressive thing I've learned yet out of our two and some hours of talking. That is amazing. Uh, Let's go for one that's probably going to have more levity to it. Sam Sneed. Sam Sneed. You know, um, I did three hours of videotape with Sam Sneed up at either the Greenbrier or the other one. White Silver. I can't remember which it was. And he never repeated himself. And it was a tour de force uh, as far as storytelling was concerned. But he was also really foul-mouthed. Oh, yes. I, I'm, I'm aware. A lot of people aren't. Yeah. I mean, during that three hours, I mean, we, had, we would have had to take an hour out of it. <laughs> From cursing. It was a strange, but... I liked the man for all of that. He was a country boy. He didn't know any better. But I was very impressed by his recall. Intelligent. Absolutely. And I think one of the great storytellers. Yes. Of all time. Yes. Yeah. All right. I'm going to give you another name. Gene Sarazen. Gene Sarazen. I became very friendly with Gene uh, because I played in the Tony Lima Memorial at Marco Island, to which Gene was attached Mm -hmm. with Ken Venturi, my colleague at CBS. And I remember one time I asked if I could sit down with Gene and talk about his life. And Ken said to me, Ken Venturi, now look, this is an old man. And he'd played his first 18 holes in the morning before I got him after lunch. And uh, this is an old man. Don't bully him or I'll be after you. Anyhow, cut a long story short, we ran out of tape. He just was so incredible. Starting, you know, from selling newspapers on the train in Harrison, New York. And uh, it was just unbelievably remarkable. His recall, he's in his 90s. It was just amazing. Uh, I loved him with a passion. I found him an incredibly rewarding individual. And no swear words, no nothing. (laughs) A little bit of the opposite of of Sam. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. A splendid human being. Well, you brought up one name, so I'll bring him up again. Ken Venturi is the next one. Your call. Ken, I've got to say, I couldn't really get on terribly well with him. He was a different kind of person. Very arrogant. And what really used to drive French Kenyon and myself mad was when he got in his cups, which he did on a regular basis, he would start swearing and screaming about Arnold Palmer having robbed him of Still, the Still, after all those years? After all those years. Never dropped it? No. Wow. And, and you know, we got to the stage, Frank and I, he would just touch my elbow and we'd walk out. In the middle of a rant. Yeah. Leaving him on his own. So I don't have... I mean, I do have a high admiration. I think he was as good an iron player... As as, any. ...as I ever saw, because I played quite a lot of golf with him. But, of course, he had the yips, and he would just sweep a putt away and said, I would make that one. 
we, later in his days. We yeah. knew otherwise. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but um, I just, you know, I, I couldn't warm to him. Like it's I, painful, isn't it, that it something you know, would haunt you so much that it would allow you to go down that alley yeah, years later. It's terrible. And, you know, I got on so well with Summerall and Whitaker and the chicken himself and Bob Daly, the number two unit director, and all the guys. And it was not a warm relationship, I would say. Yeah, with Ken. What about uh, the man who, who helped him with his swing, Byron Nelson? Lovely man. I can't imagine anybody saying anything bad about Byron Nelson. Lovely, man. Just, I, I couldn't just, believe it. I did a story on him, I beg your pardon, when I was a struggling freelance. And he told me, I said, the obvious question, Mr. Nelson, even for some young whippersnapper like me, is why did you quit when you were at the height of your powers? And he said... I'll tell you why. I couldn't keep down even a hard-boiled egg. I, my nerves were so shot to pieces. And I never saw that ever written by anybody else. I haven't read that either. And that's not unlike Bobby Jones, right? Bob Jones used to yes. have trouble keeping down food during tournaments. Yeah. And Bobby, you know, got into the whiskey pretty he well. He did, Absolutely. Absolutely. As uh, Nelson did not, but um, I was very touched by that story. I'm surprised. Yeah, I have never heard that story before. I'll be honest with you. I don't understand. Some of these reporters, they they don't know they're rearing from their elbow. (laughs) But no, that's the stress getting up. I I never heard that. I can can only imagine, though. Yeah. He, much like Hogan in his own respect, had a level of perfection that they kind of expected to get out of the golf ball. Exactly. And, you know, I think one man drove the fire in his belly in Hogan, and clearly I think Byron had probably burnt that hole in his belly after time. exactly. Exactly. He didn't play, you know, during your your time, but did you ever have, do you have any stories about Walter Hagen? Oh, I mean. ever run into him? Unbelievable. You know, um, they wouldn't allow him in a clubhouse at Royal St. George's. So he had his chauffeur-driven rolls parked across the entrance so no one could get in while he sat on the running board and changed his shoes before walking to the... You got to love him. I loved him. I loved him. I mean, I never... I I never met him. I was very close to meeting him, but never quite made it. That's got to be one that that's a miss, right? I mean, that's got a that's that's a miss. Not being Walter Hagen. I, I think uh, Arnold Palmer. I can't remember if it was when he passed away or in, if it was one of the uh, ceremonies to honor him, probably with the PGA. But he has a quote, and I, I'm going to misquote it a little bit here. But he said something to the effect of. Any professional golfer, whoever uh, puts a fat check between his fingers, owes a debt of gratitude to Walter Hagen for you know raising the prize of being a professional golfer out of the pro shop yes. and into the newspapers. Yes, absolutely. And of course, I mean, uh, at that same at that same open, as I was told by a man who was there, he took off his bow tie and tux jacket and played in played in his evening wear in the British Open. Love it. I yeah, love it. Character, right? I mean, we'd, we'd all die for a Walter Hagen out there today. And, you know, I must tell you another story. Please, you tell as many as you like. Charlie Price, you know, the great golf writer, mm-hmm. who was a good friend of mine, went to stay with Walter Hagen to write Hagen's biography and they got so drunk they stayed together for 18 months oh no never wrote a word <laughs> I love it that, I love it Charlie told me that story I'm not telling 
Tales out of school. No, no, that's hilarious. Mm. That is hilarious. Let's go to another icon in the game. uh, Changed the sport in his own way. Arnold Palmer. Oh, I have nothing but nothing but praise for Arnold Palmer. I met him for the first time at the Centenary British Open, and he was very friendly with Pat Ward Thomas, who wrote for the Guardian newspaper and was really one of the better golf writers I've ever known. And Pat got me invited to dinner with Arnold and Winnie at Rusak's Hotel. And the first thing I did on arriving and meeting him, shaking hands, and I shook hands with him and nearly lost my hand. His hand was the size of a dinner plate, and he gave you the squeeze. My God, I wanted to cry out, (laughs) but didn't do so, obviously. And I said, Mr. Palmer, as a young British person, I want to apologize for the dreadful food we have. Arnold was silent for two or three minutes, and he said, young Mr. Wright, I don't want ever to hear you apologize for anything the Brits have done. You saw us through to freedom in the Second World War. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I was just, I was, I was just totally taken aback, and I apologized. But we became really good friends after that, and I, I visited him in Pennsylvania. Um, one of the more famous calls that I perpetrated, there was a Newsweek sports editor called Pete Axthelm, who was a friend of mine from New York. When I, I lived five years in New York when I, when I first came here permanently. He wrote a big piece in Newsweek extolling my virtues because I had said at the Jackie Gleason again at Inverary, Arnold Palmer hooked his tee shot at the par 316th far out into a pond or lake. And uh, I said, Arnold Palmer has found himself several acres of aquatic doom. And Axtown wrote a whole column saying that I should always be stationed near water. <laughs> and and uh, it was really warm about me, which did me no good. No, nothing but good. Yeah. No, but I, you know, I loved Arnold. And we, I must say I got very drunk with him one time. Right? What was that like? What's a drunk Arnold Palmer like? Just the same as usual. No different. Really? Um, yeah. And I was at uh, Bay Hill, and we were drinking, uh, all myself and Governor Tom Ridge of Pennsylvania. And we drank vodka and exchanged stories till the early hours. And while the two of them, of course Ridge was a huge man, uh, while the two of them were in possession of their faculties, I became a gibbering idiot. And thankfully, my room was at the top of the first flight of stairs. And I went up those flight of stairs on my hands and knees. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) And actually, that was the last time that I uh, really drank a lot with Arnold. But, I mean, he was quite an old man then. How about the person we can thank or blame for you being up in uh, the booth at the Masters, Dan Jenkins? Oh, Dan was a great guy. I traveled. I took him around Europe, all the European Opens. As a matter of fact, in the year when Peter Alice won three Opens, Spain, Italy, and Portugal in consecutive weeks with a streaming cold, and Dan... I think initiated the phrase, beware the sick golfer. I think it was Dan. Really? Anyhow, um, Dan was a great friend to me and then a great enemy. 
uh, when he said that I, you know, had said what I did say yeah. to the woman reporter. Well, of course I did, but she had said it was off the record and then wrote me out of a job. And so uh, I was very upset with him for that. But we, funnily enough, we had a reconciliation, would you believe, at Billmore Forest Country. Oh, here in North Carolina? Yeah. I was honored by the Jess Sweetser Award. Which is handed, which is handed out on an annual basis, and Ben Hogan won it, which made it perfect. Yeah, perfect um, circle. But only yeah. two, only two writers, myself, and the boy who did the uh, Atlanta Journal Constitution, Furman, Furman Bisher. He and I are the only two writers to have been won given that award. Right. I did not know. You that. know, and that's Carrie Middlecoff. Harvey Ward, you know. Yeah. I mean, we're in... Some of the great... We're yeah, in... Great company. Quite exalted company. I was the 20th ever winner of that award. And what is that? What is it awarded for? Friends of Billmore Forest. Believe I was a member. And uh, I've always been a friend to them. Because I love the club. Yeah, that was one of the most uh, memorable evenings of my life. To be honored in that way. And you made up with Dan at, at And I made up with Dan at that because he was coming to speak on Ben Hogan. And of course I spoke on Ben Hogan as well. So that's how we reconciled. So that was another great thing that Mr. Hogan did for me. Absolutely. Was I mean, was that reconciliation? Was it... Was it, I don't know, is, was it said or was it just the fellowship of being together again? You know no, what I mean? Did it you was, have words? It was there? said. He said, I, I, I was way out of line. Way out of line. And uh, I, uh, you know, we had such a good time with our respective families in Europe, traveling all over the opens. It was terrific. And he wrote a story uh, 20,000 words, and it was entitled Sips and Dins with the Elegantini. And I was invited, as I told him, by the Aga Khan to see his new golf course that Robert Trent Jones Sr. did at Pevero in Sardinia. And Tony Brad said to me, and Tonight, Mr. Wright, you're going to have sips and dins with the Elegantini at the Carla Volpe Hotel, and along with the Aga himself. And Jenkins thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. Uh, yeah, I love Dan. Let's, let's bring up another part. You just brought him up, and he, he unfortunately just passed Peter Alice. Oh, Peter Alice and I were contemporaries yeah. and um, he went the pro route and I went the amateur route although shamateur you could call me shamateur I like that Hogan's clubs but yeah um, Peter and I had a serious falling out uh, we played in a tournament together no not together uh, we played in a tournament in uh, Sunningdale England called the Bowwater Bowwater and my partner that year was Bobby Locke, as a matter of fact. And Sean Connery was a member. And Peter Alice was played in the event. It was one, one pro and one amateur. And David Thomas, who I trained to win the British Open, but he finished second in 1966. Um, after, the, after the tournament, we got into a putting competition on the... You and Peter Alice. Uh, no, Peter Alice, Sean Connery, oh. Dave Thomas, and myself. And Dave and I were partners against the other two. And it was 10 pounds a hole, but no, no money changed hands. So I wrote a story that we played 36 holes and no, play, no money changed hands. Well, 
Peter Alice was very upset because the Beeb didn't allow you to gamble, BB, oh. the BBC. And Sean Connery was upset because he didn't want anybody to know that he'd be dumb enough to play for 10 pounds. 10 pounds a hole! And uh, they both denied the story, which was pretty ridiculous. And I let Peter know it was pretty ridiculous. I said, you told lies to save your skin. Now, that's not a friend of mine. So we, we did break up, I'm afraid. But, um, I, you know, I was friendly with him for the longest time. Yeah, yeah just one of those things. I never made it up with Connery either. Really? Mm. All those years. Yeah, All both those. passed this year, right? Both yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. left us. Yeah. Dave Thomas was a really good friend of mine. I, I whipped him into shape to win the British Open. But, you know, he was the worst chipper of a, of a golf ball, of a high-class player. The worst ever in the history of the game. Was he handsy? Was that the issue? I have no idea what it was in the, in the head, I think. He would putt if he was 30 yards short of the green. And that's... I, I tried to get him to chip better, but when it came to the time... You know, Everybody's got their Achilles heel, right? Yeah. And that was another time when I forecast Nicholas to break his dark at the British Open at Muirfield in 66. And that was another lunch with Sir Gordon because they all backed him. <laughs> well, you, you made a living for him, right? <laughs> <laughs> so how about, uh, let's go to uh, Gary Player, oh, nine-time I've, major champion. I've known him, man and boy, literally. When he first came to England, you remember George Bloomberg was his uh, sponsor. And Gary, in 1955, missed 13 straight cuts, including the Schweppes PGA Championship at Royal Liverpool Hoylet. And uh, the captain of the British PGA was a big uh, Welsh-born gentleman. But uh, domiciled in the north of England called Hugh Lewis, who was pro at an altering a municipal club in Cheshire. And we all three, Lewis missed the cut, Blair missed the cut, and I am just a cub reporter, you know, hadn't got to anywhere. It was, this was 55, yes, yeah. So I was only 20. 22. And uh, Gary, who is chagrined, having lost, I mean, he may fail to make the cut 13th straight time. He said, uh, you know, uh, Ben, uh, Mr. Bloomberg is going to call me home or no very soon now. So, Huey, tell me what I can do to improve in a, in a hurry. And Hugh Lewis, who was a big fella, 6'3", and Gary down here somewhere, looked down at him and he said, Gary, lad, he said, I've got some advice for you. Buy yourself a one-way ticket to Cape Town, return to your home, forget about golf, and get yourself an honest job. Wow! And the tears welled up, and the tears were running down Player's face, and I said, Huey, for Christ's sake, wow, Huey, what the hell? <laughs> right. I mean, he, who says that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, anyhow, the following year, Gary won his first tournament, and the Dunlop in, uh, I think it was Sunningdale, it was... 90 hole tournament and immediately took off for America. And, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, but you were there when your friend said, get, basically, give up the game. Yes, exactly. And had he listened to him, no one would know. No one would know. 
Gary Player, the Black Knight. Yeah. I knew he wouldn't quit. I mean, this I've known him, man and boy. And last time we were on the golf course together was Cliffs Valley, the one I designed for the Cliffs communities. And Gary's course, which is the Cliffs at Mountain Park, had been unable to open because he had a lot of problems with the environmentalist, as did I. But I, I came before him. And um, so he, he chose to play the Gary Player Invitational at my course, Cliffs Valley. So he played par 3, 11th hole, with every foursome, and there were 32 amateur foursomes. And you could take his score if, you, if it was better than any yeah. of your own. And I shall never forget, he was 70 years of age. He had 26 birdies and a hole in one. What? Off the championship team. Out of 33 groups? 32. 32. 26 birdies and a hole in one. And, and um, he was playing off the championship tee. We were off the whites. Unbelievable. And I, and he said to me, before I play, Mr. Wright, you're going to play first because I want to watch what you can do. And I said, well, you may do that. And I proceed to hit it three feet from the hole. And I said, beat that, you little swine. <laughs> and uh, he went, went back to the championship tee, put it two feet six. Oh, my goodness. And he made me take both the pups. So we both made two. That's fantastic. But, I mean, 70 years of age. Unbelievable. 26 birdies. 26 birdies and a hole in one. one. And that, you know, for me, of course, Gary, when I, when he first started to come to prominence, he would bring, well, he'd have other people bring crates of bananas into the press tent trying to make us eat better. <laughs> and he always got on to me about my drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, health fanatic, zero doubt. I mean, he really was a man, the first real athlete golfer. I uh, I helped him very much one one time. It would be 1960, the old Canada Cup, uh, World Cup as it was afterwards. And he was playing with Bobby Locke, and they were playing with... Um, Arnold Palmer and Sam Sneed. And Gary had overnight an attack of asthma. And of course, I always had asthma uh, medication because I might need it at any time. Sure. So I offered, and I drove back into uh, Dublin from Port Marnock and fetched my drugs and gave them to Gary. And he went out and shot 65. And I'm surprised there wasn't a steward's inquiry, for God's sake. But um, he entertained my then wife and I at a dinner at the hotel, the Shelbourne Hotel in Dublin. And he did a thing that I never saw before or since. He would walk on one hand, handstand, and he would walk all his way across the floor. On one hand? Like his body suspended above him. Exactly. And he would support the weight and walk across the room. Well, it was a sort of crawl. Like pulling his fingers and hands yeah. across the floor. Yeah. I've never seen that. It was amazing. Incredible feat of strength. I mean, that was that was an eye-opener for me. Actually, Palmer and Sneed won the event, despite Gary's 65. Unbelievable. Yeah. How about, uh, I have another player for you, Lee Trevino. Oh, marvelous man. <laughs> I loved Lee. Yeah. Uh, you know, he and I 
really got on uh, like a house of power. Um, at the 71 Open at Marion, I went all the way with them. And he said to me, after about the fourth hole of the final round, he said, Ben, I've got this. Wow. I said, so so early, Lee? He said, you wait. He's going to make some cardinal error that's going to unhinge him. And damn me, he buried the sod over a wedge. Somewhere like the ninth or tenth. And uh, he always reckoned that he had the Indian sign on Jack. Talk about people convinced of their superiority. And in the World Cup they played together in Florida, Trevino outplayed Jack all through. And they were a team. It's, it's, It's as if he needed Nicholas to bring out the best in Trevino. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I've yeah. always admired him. I mean, because his style is completely unorthodox compared to a Hogan. Oh, you indeed. Know, the way he'd aim, you would say he's going to hit it off the planet, and but he could repeat that action yeah. over and over and over. It's really remarkable. Yes, it is. And uh, I loved him. He was a character. But, of course, he went almost reclusive. In the latter stages of his career, he got sick of being the entertainer. That's the issue. I I, I find that with not not calling him a comedian, but there, I've seen this with comedians, where you're funny, you're entertaining in your career, then everybody expects that to be you when you're off the mic. Yes, and it becomes an expectation of you run into Lee Trevino at the grocery store. I'm not saying this has happened, but. And you, he doesn't make you laugh. It's like, well, he's got an attitude, and then all of a sudden, that burden becomes part of his, you know what he has to bear. Yeah, is yeah. that I, okay? Well, I'm supposed I, to. I'm sure that was the case with Lee. He became, became sick of always being, uh, hope, you know, asked to entertain. Really, but he could play. Gosh. He really could with the weirdest, so weirdest yeah. looking thing, but. You yeah. would never guess. Like if you saw that swing, if you didn't see where it went, and you yeah. were standing on the range and you saw a guy line up and yeah. hit over there, maybe just one time you'd be like, whew, he's going to have a tough run on it today. Yeah. But you didn't know he, that's where he was aiming. Yeah. Right? And just could Well, I must it. tell you another story about Hogan. Um, I was standing by him at, I, I can't remember which event it was, but it, but a, a journalist asked him, Mr. Hogan, how far do you hit a five iron on average? And Ben said, that's really a ridiculous question. But the answer is from 120 to 180, depending on how far I want to hit it. I thought that was an even. I mean, oh he, yeah, he was. Oh, that was not. Yeah, he didn't turned, suffer many fools. I, and I've got one more story. One, no, tell away. Yeah, one more Hogan yeah. story. Um, we told him we had the lunch Shady Oaks for the for the announced team. When Gary McCord joined us, and he went on his knees in an airplane in the front cabin to Frank Chikinian to beg for a job because I was sitting next to Frank. And um, McCord uh, begged to be invited to the, the Hogan lunch, but I said, no, no, it's no good for you, Gary, because Mr. Hogan doesn't suffer fools gladly. And let's face it, you, you are in that category. And... Um, he begged and begged and begged. Eventually, I, silly enough to call Mr. Hogan at the factory and said, can I bring a mystery guest? And he said, of course, any guest of yours is welcome. So I took Gary, and Gary introduced himself to Mr. Hogan. And Hogan said, nice to meet you, Mr. McCord. What do you do for a living, son? And Hogan knew, I'm oh, sure. Oh, no, yeah. But I'm, I, I can't be, 
I can't be certain, but I think he knew. Anyhow, McCord is always very jumpy. said, I played a uh, PGA Tour, Mr. Hogan. And Hogan said, you know, I've always been told it's the mind that goes first. Now, let me think. I don't, I don't remember that name, Mr. McCord. How long have you been out there, son? And uh, Mary's now getting very fidgety. Said, 19 years, Mr. Hogan. Oh, man. I just can't recollect the name. How many tunes have you won, Mr. McCord? And Gary said, none yet, Mr. Hogan. And Hogan said, well, what the fuck are you out there for? Whoa. And with Just that, cut he, to the chase, yeah. And with that, he turned his back. Hogan did. Yeah. Hogan yeah. did. On Gary McCord, never spoke another word to him. Never said goodbye. Just ignored him. Which, you know, that you were saying, you yeah, know, Hogan he had has a his ways. Yeah. He could be cruel. No question. Fact was, he was never cruel to me. Unbelievable. Okay, I only have a couple more. I have a million more, but I'll go with just a couple more. Henry Longhurst. Oh, great guy. Right. I made my debut for the BBC uh, at a place called Long Ashton, Bristol, England, in a martini tournament. I had to drive down from Manchester, where I was freelancing. And I got there in time for lunch with the crew. And Henry proceeded to put down three bottles of claret, single-handedly. Oh, he did. He did. Before going on the air at two o'clock. Wow. Wow. And I, I thought... Different days. I was absolutely thrown into despair. I thought, oh my God, this will kill my career yeah. as quick as right. anything. Anyhow... We go to the tower, and the broadcast open. Henry's word perfect. Word perfect. I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. Anyhow, I soon learned. And I must tell you, at the Masters, my first broadcast at the Masters for CBS, I said, Henry... I want you to critique my first performance. If, would you be good enough to do that? And he yeah. said, of course, my boy, of course. On the clear understanding that you uh, f- fetch me in your golf cart from the 16th tower and take me to the bar and wet my whistle. <laughs> I said, you're on. So we get to the bar, men's grill upstairs, you know. Yeah. After the, about the fifth drink, gin and soda he, he was drinking, I said, Henry, when the hell are you going to start critiquing my game, for God's sake? You know, am I going to go broke buying you drink? And he said, one more, dear boy, one more. Had one more. And I said, are you ready now? And he said, Yeah. Um, and I said, well, why has it taken you seven drinks to get ready? And he said, because when I tell you what I'm going to tell you, I fully expect you punch me straight in the mouth. So I said, okay, well, <laughs> now you really got me interested. No kidding. What's the verdict? You are absolutely dreadful, Ben. Wow. You ran off at the mouth like a dripping tap. You were were nervous, weren't you, boy? And I said, yeah, of course I was. He said, so was I when I made my first broadcast. But when I'm nervous, I make sure I don't talk too much. And I said, okay, point taken. He said, I'm going to give you something to think about for the rest of your career if you're going to make it. And I said, I'd be happy to hear that. And he said, we are nothing but caption writers in a pic 
picture business. If you can't improve the quality of the pictures with your words, keep your effing mouth shut. And then you punched him. No. <laughs> and then I said, I said, my God, I see your point. Uh, perfectly. And how I, beautifully and I, put. I, I mean, I lived with that set saying for the rest of my career. Made a career of it. Yeah. So I loved Henry. We were, as total coincidence, we were members of the same golf club in Bedfordshire, England. But of course he was way ahead of me uh, in the years and everything else. He, and the man was very, very much underrated. In my opinion. Of, of all the broadcasters you've worked with and, and overseen, who really stood out to you? Jack Whitaker. Really? And what was it about Jack Whitaker? He was a poet. I mean, he, he was... You know what Frank Chickenin would say to Jack? I'm giving you 20 minutes to prepare. I want you to do an essay... When I come to you after the commercial break in 20 minutes' time, and Jack would say, okay. And he would deliver this incredible essay. Like off the cuff? Off the cuff. Hmm. I mean, he was a very, very sharp operator, was Jack. God rest his soul. He's the only guy amongst that ilk that's outlived me. I outlived Kinian, Venturi, Summerall, but not Whitaker. He died 95, I think. He was a foot soldier in World War II. I didn't know that. Yeah. And he was invalided out at the Battle of the Bulge. And believe it or not, recuperated, convalesced at the Grove Park Inn. No kidding. Really? Yeah. How about that? Yeah, how about that? Oh, well, there's not too many we, places better to recuperate, no. right? Beautiful. We used to play for a piece of sterling, a match play series every year when we were on the tour. And the point of reference was that it had to be a course that had housed a major championship. And... Um, Jack somehow won the first year and demanded a uh, sterling silver cocktail shaker, which he used to the end of his day. And uh, I won every other year after that. So I got a lot of silver around the I love it. I love it. All right, I'm going to give you one last one, and then we're going to finish. We're going to end with the man, uh, Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholas and I have a complicated relationship. I would say love-hate. For instance, when he played in the BMW tournament on my golf course, he came to me uh, because I'd asked him for his opinion. He said to me, Ben, totally ridiculous. You have daylilies on a golf course. That's absolutely absurd. And I said, Jack, they're not meant to be part of the golf course. They're part of the ambience of walking the park. He said, well, I got in them at the first hole, and they've no part to play on a golf course. You know, that's the kind of thing yeah. that would drive me nuts with him. But at other times, he was perfectly reasonable. Uh, in fact, when... Um, he was masterminding the break, break away from the tour to get the players. Um, and he was, uh, we were, Pat Ward Thomas and I were in his home in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, and Barbara baked some delectable cupcakes. And we, we, we were going to have tea uh, when he got home. And... Uh, he got home, and, uh, you know, he wolfed 26 cupcakes. Really? 26? Yes. Unbelievable. Yes. And I said, 
I said to Barbara, did he do this often? And she said, thankfully, not too often. He was so nervous because of the, the ongoing It was basically a war with, like, Dean Beeman yeah. on, that, on the break-off. And I, I actually interviewed Dean Beeman, gosh, I think it was December of last year. Here's Dean Beeman's words, uh, if I can remember them right. I asked him about, I called it a coup d'etat of uh, tour players to, you know, take out, you know, the PGA Tour and start their own. And his response was, well, you can't really call it a coup d'etat. And I said, really, why is that? And he goes, because I won. (laughs) It was like, oh, my. It was, wow. I mean, Dean Beeman's a a, a wonderful He's a very strange. He uh, fired me um, from doing the introductions at the World Series at Akron um, because I said uh, at the end of my diatribe, may the best man win if he's here. Sevi had 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 this argument with Beeman and wouldn't play. And Beeman fired me. Interesting. And another thing. Now this, I don't know whether I ought to tell this. This is really a bad story. It's your call. I'll go. Okay. There are very few golf professionals on the tour that I don't like. But one of them was a young man from Texas. I think he should remain nameless, don't okay. you? Call Venturi christened him the hook. And he he wouldn't tolerate CBS after that. Anyhow, I'm sitting having lunch with Freddie Couples at Avenel in the Washington area. This guy comes in and says, Ben, I'm convinced of it. You're having a homosexual affair with Sebi Ballesteros. Jeez. I said, what did you say? And he repeated it. And I said, why would you say such a ridiculous thing? He said, because all you ever do is smarm over how brilliant Sevy is. And whereas ordinary people like me never get a mention. I said, well, you got a mention from Venturi who called you the hook. And he said, nevertheless, I think you're having it off. Jeez. Yeah. So I said, if that's the case, come outside and we'll settle it out there. So we went outside and I smashed him in the mouth. You did not. Yes. And he went backwards over a box hedge, small box hedge. And I, I, I went back and resumed lunch, left him unconscious. You just went back down and sitting with Freddie Couples. And Freddie said, Ben, you've destroyed your career. You're, you're going to be, you're going to be a prior. Beeman will have you out of here. When your feet won't touch the floor, I said, "Well, I'm prepared for that." Anyhow, and duly get hauled up in front of Beeman, and I said, "Dean, you and I have known each other since you were an amateur and won the British Amateur." And damn well you did it. I have no defense. I had I had a terrible insulting remark made about me. He said, I know what the remark was. Because Freddie Couples told me. And I said, well, I've got no defense. So, you know, if you want to ban me, then it's your call. He said... There's only one thing you did wrong, Ben. And I said, what the hell was that, Dean? You didn't kill him. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, Dean. (laughs) Oh, my. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the show. The stories between the Hogan podcast, which is going to come out prior to this one, and this one, I don't even know if this will be three podcasts. I don't know. I mean, the information's been so good. Thank you for sharing the time. It's my pleasure, Connor. It's been a real joy. I love talking about history, and there isn't enough done about it. I agree 100%. There's so many great stories, and I hope you don't mind if I come calling again to hear more stories from you. No, I wouldn't mind because I barely scratched the surface. Yeah, (laughs) and that's the problem. I mean, we've been talking for three and a half hours, and we've got this much information. We just... 
There's always more. There's yeah. all these little stories. Yes. You know, we were talking about this prior to the podcast when, we, when you called me on the phone and that anybody can look up, you know, how many majors Seve won. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody can look up and, and know that <laughs> Ben Hogan won nine majors. But it's hard to tell the story of what it sounded like for Ben Hogan to hit a two iron. You know what I mean? And those are the stories we need to capture. Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm absolutely in agreement with you. Um, There's no substitute for really witnessing a great event. And I've been fortunate to do that. And actually, you know, I started in 54. The British Open was my first event as, as a cub reporter. And I'm still doing it. And um, Rolex are using my voice on commercial. Oh, I didn't know that. And paying me. Amazing. After all this time. After well, all this time. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. We'll do this again, I promise. I hope so. I sincerely hope you enjoyed the extraordinary candor Mr. Wright had in our interview. One of the great things about this show is getting to see behind the curtain of history. Anyone can find out how many majors so-and-so won, but it's shows like this one where you get to hear stories you aren't likely to read about in any history book. These are the stories that reveal how golf is the most human of all sports. Ben Wright will be back for more podcasts in the future. But until that time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Mm -hmm.